Welcome to the sixth episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a new podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, it's hard to interpret this week's data. At a national level, the number of cases were about the same as last week. It has been true throughout this pandemic. There are so many conflating factors. For one, New York City redefined death from COVID-19 and added 4,000 people from the past. And of course, the virus is moving into new areas. But overall, in places like California, Washington State, and New York that experienced the infection relatively early and took action, the death rate seems to have flattened. Listeners should not pay much attention to the daily reported numbers on incidents. As the number of testing kits slowly rises and the criteria for testing loosens, the numbers will continue to rise faster than the actual spread. When we finally do antibody testing, we're going to find a huge number of people who simply didn't get tested for an active infection, either because their symptoms were so mild or they just stayed home, never called their doctors, and never came to the ER or hospital. Robbie, are we any closer to understanding the coronavirus than we were a month ago? Absolutely, and that's great news. This week, two pieces of data were released, which tell us a lot, and I believe shift our understanding of the problems, the challenges, and the opportunities. Let me tell you about each. The first came from Stanford University. Researchers recruited volunteers over the internet to be tested for antibodies. They did it in three different geographies in the Bay Area. To their credit, the research protocol designers made sure the number of participants in each geographic area was proportional to the population. On the other hand, the participants were not necessarily representative of the overall population since the recruitment tool was the internet. The data indicates that there were more women than men and proportionally more white participants than Latino or Asian. In total, it tested 3,300 people and identified that between 2.5% and 4.2% of Santa Clara County residents had antibodies to this new coronavirus in their blood. The county previously reported only 1,000 cases based on nasal swab viral testing. When you multiply 2.5% to 4.2% times the actual population in Santa Clara County, it indicates that the real number of people who've been infected was between 48,000 and 81,000, or 35 to 50 times higher than had been previously reported. Most importantly, 
when you then apply that prevalence to create a new denominator and compare it to the number of deaths from the virus, you get a lethality of less than 0.2% or barely more than the annual flu. Assuming these findings hold as the study numbers increase, the results will radically shift our understanding of the virus and alter our thinking on the best way to approach the problem. In a similar study reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, 215 women who came to a New York City hospital to deliver a baby were tested for antibodies. Of these, 15% tested positive for COVID-19. And because the test is believed to miss something around another one-third, the actual number could be 20% or somewhere between 2.7 million and 3.6 million New York City residents who have already had COVID-19. That would be well on the way to herd immunity. Like the Stanford study, there remains huge questions about sampling. Since we don't know if the incidence of COVID-19 is similar in women of childbearing age to the rest of the population, higher or lower. However, it should help diminish fear as social distancing is slowly eased. And we've seen similar numbers coming from other countries, particularly Germany, that has seen a much higher incidence of people having had the virus based upon antibody testing, and once again, as a consequence, a much lower mortality than people have feared up to this point. This week, there was a huge conversation about the drug remdesivir. Can you tell listeners about it, and what, and what is the likelihood it would be efficacious? Jeremy, Thursday night, a video was released of doctors at the University of Chicago talking about the remarkable results they have had using this antiviral drug. The stock price of Gilead, the company that manufactures the drug, soared as a consequence. If the encouraging results hold, that would be great, and I'm rooting that they do. However, this study has a huge number of major caveats and red flags. The first was the study design. Why did Gilead design the study as one that could only yield what we call anecdotal outcome? And why did the University of Chicago, a highly respected academic institution, agree to administer the drug as part of an anecdotal study rather than a double-blind, scientifically controlled one? Now, the usual reason researchers do anecdotal studies is that a treatment is clearly so efficacious that not providing it to everyone would be ethically worrisome. In this case, that couldn't be the reason. Remdesivir was originally developed to treat hepatitis and then applied to Ebola. When subject to double-blind testing, it failed in both cases. And although it was a possible treatment for people with life-threatening illness from COVID-19, there was no scientific proof. Moreover, this drug is in relative short supply at a national level, so it couldn't be administered to everyone who was critically ill, even if we wanted to do so. As such, it would not have been very difficult to double the number of study participants, giving half the drug and the other half a placebo, randomly assigned and blinded as to who is getting which. And had we used this standard approach, we'd have real proof and we can either discard the drug for this virus, as we are slowly doing 
with the anti-malarial drug or ramp up production with exceptional speed. Instead, we're being stuck in the middle, unsure. Now, none of these questions means that the drug is not as effective as the video implied, but it raises huge questions and creates delay. So far, no one from the University of Chicago or Gilead has discussed the video or how it went public. The only statement so far is from the University of Chicago. They said that drawing any conclusions at this point is premature and scientifically unsound, and that is how I see the use of this drug relative to COVID-19 at the time. Of course, that hasn't dampened the enthusiasm of stock price. One congressman has already asked the Security and Exchange Commission to investigate. Robbie, we are starting to hear a variety of plans, including President Trump's three-phase and California Governor Newsom's with six parts. Uh, can you explain them and let listeners know your thoughts? President Trump laid out a three-phase plan to move the United States back towards normal. Phase one could begin after there were 14 days of downward numbers in disease incidents. To know this would require broad testing, which so far we don't have. But assuming we completed it, this phase would keep the six-foot expectations and would allow no more than 10 people to be assembled in a given space at any time. Phase two would expand the number of people who could assemble to 50, and it would allow non-essential travel, plus it would open schools and camps. Phase three would be unrestricted activities. Newsom's six parts include adequate testing capacity, plans to protect the most vulnerable populations, sufficient hospital supplies, continued six-foot distancing, working with academic programs to accelerate any treatments, and the ability to reinstitute the restrictions if the numbers of cases rise. My concern with the president's plan is there's not a scientific or mathematical break in place should these guesstimates prove too aggressive in easing social distancing. And my concern with the governors is the opposite. I don't believe that we can ease and then once again restrict social distancing rapidly. I can't see businesses that have rehired staff to suddenly lay them off again or restaurants to let the food that they just bought early in the week go bad. Jeremy, in our monthly podcast, Fixing Healthcare, you often post questions from the perspective of what we call the patient. When it comes to COVID-19, what are the three biggest questions for which you would like to know the answers? Well, first off, we're hearing reports in other countries of people testing positive again long after they had overcome the disease. Uh, what's going on with this? Are they getting reinfected? Um, the, the news coming out about this doesn't really seem all that clear. Um, and do we have any more of an understanding now than we did a couple weeks ago about long-term immunity? Next would be uh, numerous meatpacking plants around Iowa and the Midwest and in the country have been hit with uh, coronavirus, many of them closing. Uh, grocery stores are still pretty sparse on some of the food and, and items. Um, how concerned about the supply chain are you? 
and how concerned should we be about the supply chain? Uh, my final question would be, how would you judge the media's coverage of coronavirus to this point? Um, do you think it has been fair or too much fear-mongering and sensationalism? I love your questions, Jeremy, and I believe they are ones on the minds of people across this nation. When it comes to testing, we're still in the early phases of developing consistently accurate tests. We know that 30% of people who get tested with active disease who have it still test negative. And the immunological testing, the serologic testing to determine who's had the virus in the past is only first becoming rapidly available. The best thinking is that individuals who had COVID-19 will have antibodies and will be immune. What's not clear is for how long this will be the case. When people seem to be, I'll say in quotes, reinfected, I think that what we're seeing is individuals who were infected but had a negative test or continued to be infected and had a negative test. And so it appears when they have a positive test that they've developed the disease for the second time. Instead, I think it's more a question of testing difficulties than actual reinfection. We are seeing the workers who put together the food that we eat coming down with this virus and not being able to go and prepare it in advance for us. And as you pointed out, meatpacking was identified this week as a particular area of concern. Having said that, the United States is a major exporter of food. And second of all, what we've seen is hoarding behavior, people buying more than they're likely to need over the next several days or weeks. And so a lot of the supply is moving from the stores to our freezers. We saw this with toilet paper earlier in the process. We're continuing to see this with various cleansing wipes. So I am concerned as I am about everything with the coronavirus, but I am not overly concerned that our nation is going to run out of food. I think we're actually going to see, and this is based upon the experts in the agricultural field, an excess of food at some time soon in the future as individuals stop hoarding the food that is available, the supplies that are available, and manufacturers have ramped up the production. Relative to the media, I give it a, a fairly good grade. I think the reporting has been overall very accurate. I think the one area that I would criticize the reporting is a failure for people to understand that the disease itself, once it's in the population and once it has not been contained, will spread and that the numbers that we're seeing don't justify headlines that make it sound as though the pandemic has gotten out of control. 
Instead, what we're seeing in the numbers, and I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is that the people being infected is consistent with the exponential viral nature of the disease. We're seeing the positive impact of social distancing and the deaths that are being reported rather than being unexpected are what you see with every virus, whether it's COVID-19 or simply the flu. Robbie, another thing we've seen in the news a lot the past week has been protests on uh, people who are upset about their rights being restricted, about having to close their businesses, lose their livelihoods, um, lost jobs, things like that. I mean, America values liberty, values freedom, yet we're in a very precarious situation where a lot of freedoms we're super used to have been restricted. I mean, the government is literally telling people that losing their jobs and losing their livelihoods is is what's best for them. Uh, and, and people are not happy about it. What are your thoughts on that? I divide the, as you call them, protests into two categories. The first are people whose economic viability is compromised, whose businesses that they've worked hard to create may disappear forever And I believe that if we're going to be telling individuals that you have to take these steps with the consequences well predictable, that we need to provide the economic protection that they deserve and the ability to know that they can restart whenever the social distancing requirements are lifted. And we've not seen that. Congress did pass the $2.2 trillion bill, and we can expect that this week there'll be an additional loan program developed and hopefully enacted. But I don't think we've taken enough steps to address the reality that if you take a small business and you force it to close, but it continues to have to pay rent and it wants to retain its people, Or if it doesn't retain its people, the consequences for those individuals who are likely to find themselves without a job, we have not done what we need to do. When we put that restriction on people, we need to be able to assure them that we'll be just as aggressive in being able to restore them to the viability, to the livelihood that they had in the past. So I'm very sympathetic, particularly to the small businesses and to the employees who find themselves unemployed and can't be sure what's going to happen once we slowly return back to a more normal type of social and business interaction. I'm less sympathetic to those individuals who are just concerned about the constriction in their lives that this is causing, but who are not experiencing the type of financial harm that the counterparts in small business are. This is, I believe, the equivalent of a war, and there's a sacrifice to be made. And sacrificing personal happiness during this transition to me is far lower in the relative 
difficulty level than those people for who their family is going to have not just short-term, but long-term consequences. And, and that being said, I think um, a lot of the, the frustration on everybody's part is up until this week, we were given no real clear direction on when we could expect things to potentially end some sort of, you know, like you had discussed metrics for kind of reopening and returning to normalcy and kind of the pace that that would happen at. That being said, my sense is that our nation is becoming more and more divided about how fast to ease social distancing. Uh, What are your thoughts now that we have more data, both in its relative infectivity and lethality? You're absolutely correct, Jeremy. We have not given people the clear understanding of this virus that we should, and we've led them to believe that this would be a very short-term difficulty when the truth is that until there is a vaccine or until there is herd immunity, that we will need to continue some degree of social distancing. It's hard to believe it's only been five or six weeks and we could be looking easily at 12 to 18 months. When it comes to a virus, there are two crucial factors. The first is its transmissibility, and the second is its lethality. The transmissibility is often referred to as its are not how many people under normal social interactions will catch the virus from one person. For some illnesses like measles, the number is 12 to 18. For others like the flu, it's between one and two. We've discussed this concept in our podcast before. The other factor is virulence. What percent of people who become infected will die from the virus? Here it can range from Ebola at over 50% to the flu at 0.1%, or about one in a thousand people. The initial assumption about this coronavirus, based on very limited testing, was the transmissibility was low, but the mortality was relatively high. Both seem inaccurate. The reason for the faulty conclusion is that so many people have had very mild to asymptomatic cases that went unrecognized. As a result, it appeared that few people caught it, but those who did frequently died. Neither conclusion is accurate. Based on the Stanford and New York City studies, the transmissibility may be very high, but the mortality not much more than the flu. The approach to controlling the virus then becomes very different than what many Americans believe. The big risk is the spike in the number of cases, not because of how sick it will make people. That was the issue with MERS and SARS, because of how fast the number of cases will grow in any given week. And without social distancing, there will be overwhelming of our ICUs and supply of ventilators. For perspective, in the United States, about 30 million people each year come down with the flu and 40 to 50,000 people die. If a reasonable percentage of the population already has antibodies, the mortality from COVID-19 would be about the same as the flu, at least based on the Stanford data. In contrast, because this is a completely new virus that none of us have experienced in the past, 
the total number of people likely to be infected will be much higher. We've thought in the past that the high death rates would reflect the fact that we've not seen this virus and it would be very lethal. Instead, what's happening is that because we've not seen the virus, the number of people likely to become infected will be so much higher. If let's say 100 to 200 million Americans get the virus, even though it's no more virulent than the flu, then we'd have 100,000 or 200,000 people dying simply proportional to the population of people infected, not because the virus itself was so fatal. Of course, one of the key questions is who gets sick? And what we've seen is a disproportionate mortality in patients who are older, particularly those in nursing homes. As such, it's too simplistic to assume that there's a single mortality rate. It must be based on the population of individuals who become infected, elderly far higher than children, people with chronic disease, particularly diabetes, far greater than those who are in excellent health. Putting the pieces together, reducing transmission to avoid swapping our hospitals will involve some degree of social distancing until there is a vaccine. Reducing mortality will be based on protecting the part of the population that is most vulnerable. Diminishing the mortality through social distancing requires that we are prepared to do so for at least a year to 18 months. I think Americans are slowly recognizing these realities and the very difficult and hard decisions that must be made. Robbie, we're now firmly into this pandemic. What has surprised you the most? Jeremy, I've been shocked at how poorly our doctors and nurses have been treated. Asking these professionals to care for patients with a potentially lethal disease is asking a lot. Making them do it without the best protection is irresponsible. Putting a soldier in harm's way without a gun and Kevlar vest would be a national scandal. But that is what we have asked our frontline clinicians to do. We should have mobilized every manufacturer and mandated they produce the masks, gowns, and gloves doctors and nurses need, as well as the ventilators patients may require. The only word I can think of for what has happened is pathetic. Second, I've been surprised by how hard it's been to get people to understand the facts. Some of the facts, like the difference between testing for virus and antibodies, are technical and need repeat explanations. Testing for virus, you do when you suspect an active infection, and its purpose is to have the individual self-isolate, if they are positive, to prevent the spread to others. In contrast, antibody testing tells us who's had the virus and whose body has produced antibodies in response. As we've said, although scientists aren't 100% sure, most likely they'll be protective against further infection. This information theoretically could be used to figure out which individuals can return to work. The biggest use, however, will be assessing the transmissibility and virulence of the virus and calculating how rapidly we can ease social distancing. Ultimately, it will tell us how close we're getting to herd immunity. But other facts are straightforward. People mistakenly believe that social distancing will eliminate the virus. It won't. It will reduce the spread and make the numbers on any given day look better. But as soon as the social distancing is eased, at least until there's a 
a vaccine or effective drug to prevent the infection, the exponential growth returns. Second, people think that a second wave of infection will be caused by a viral mutation. It could be, but most likely it won't be. Instead, it will be the inevitable result of a virus that spreads exponentially and a closer and more frequent contact between susceptible individuals. Third, people keep talking about major sporting events this fall. They, along with huge meetings, can't happen until there's a vaccine. If not, the rate of spread will be unmanageable. In a tightly packed arena, one person can infect 50 to 100 individuals. This is exactly what happened earlier in the pandemic at a conference in Boston. Of course, with aggressive testing of players and the isolation of players from the rest of society, the NBA playoffs, major league season, college football rivalries could theoretically be played without anyone in the stands. I'm doubtful that the players will go along with this degree of tight restriction. The final thing that surprised me actually has been positive, the resilience of people. We've asked our nation to stay inside and avoid close contact. We've required small business owners and students to abandon their livelihoods and education. Hundreds of millions of people have reached the breaking point, and yet so far, there's been minimal protest or disruption. Despite our differences, our nation has come together for the betterment of all. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a good day.